Amen. Amen. Uh, it, was a, it was a scene like uh, no other scene had ever uh, been for the nation of Israel. I mean, people were coming from, from miles around, days walk, and, and, and people got there early just to see it happen because it had never happened before. And they packed in, and as the, the valley grew with people, you could sort of see if you looked up on the hillside, little plumes of dust rising up to show that, that the whole assembly wasn't there, that, that there were still people coming, even though the place was already packed. It was one of those days, you know, one of those definitive days, one of those game-changing days, a day where after it, I mean, the nation is different. And there's this buzz in the crowd, you know, Who, who's it, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? What, what tribe is the next king of Israel going to come from? Who's it, who's it going to be? And everybody hoped it was their tribe because if it was their tribe... I'm sure they got some sort of special exemption, some tax break or something. And Samuel, the nation gathered, and, and Samuel got up on a, on a hill, and, and he was old, and his beard was gray, and his bones were starting to be brittle at this point. But there was no doubt that he was the ruler. And God spoke through this man. God spoke through Samuel and the nation loved him. And I think if you could have sort of zoomed in, I think if, if the, the cameras, the movie cameras could have zoomed in on Samuel's face, I think you would have seen a tension-filled expression. One that was both exciting that this was a day that in some ways they'd be, been waiting for for a long time, but this was also a day that in many ways God had never intended would come. The nation of Israel was different than all other nations up to this point. Every other nation had a king, but the nation of Israel had God as their king. But the Philistines were gathering might. I mean, and they were even in there, within the territory of the Israelites, the Philistines were setting up military camps. The Amorites are on the east side of the Jordan River, and they're gaining steam as well, and they're starting to press in. And, and it's as though the nation of Israel can feel the tension, and so they come to Samuel and say, we want a king. Isn't that the way it sort of works with us, too? I mean, God is good until life gets real. Like, we're content with God as our, as our king, as our God, until... The enemy starts to press in, and then it's like, well, I'm not sure that he's sufficient anymore. I need something I can see. I need something I can trust. I want to rely on something I can put my hands on. The God up in the sky somewhere out there just doesn't get the job done right now. So the nation of Israel said they wanted a king, and so God said, I will give you what you asked for. Literally, Saul's name is, means what you asked for. So he says, all right. And as Samuel goes through and he eliminates tribe after tribe after tribe, finally he lands on the tribe of Benjamin and, and Saul is the chosen one. The problem with Saul, though, is that he's terrified. I mean, when Samuel came to him before and told him he was going to be king, his response was, why me? Why me? And so when it's time for his coronation, Saul is cowering in fear in a baggage closet, and Samuel has to go get him and bring him out in front of the people. 
Saul has a pretty good beginning of his reign. I mean, he's victorious in his military pursuits, and in many ways, he follows after God for a time. But eventually, eventually, the weight of what God has called him to do catches up with him. And we're going to look at this passage this morning in 1 Samuel 15. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. 1 Samuel 15, that in many ways is going to set the stage for the rest of our time together this summer as we look at the life of David. See, Saul was David's uh, predecessor. When they announced him, when Samuel announced him, he brought him out. Even though he's cowering in fear, he's a man who's a handsome guy, a foot taller, a head taller than everybody else in the nation. And so the nation erupts in applause. I mean, they love what they see. This is a man that can lead us. This is a man that we can follow. This is a man who will help us walk into victory. And in many ways, he does. But in many ways, he lets his people down. 1 Samuel 15 starts like this. It says, Samuel said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. I mean, this is uh, Samuel's subtle way of going, I, I know you're in charge and you're king now, but let's not forget who's really in charge. <laughs> he's, he's probably like, I'm old, but I'm feisty, okay? <laughs> so listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty asks or says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. This is, this is a tough passage. I mean, if we, if we don't walk away from here with a little, bit of, a little bit of weight going, man, God, that was a little intense, then we may not have read it that well. Do not spare them. Put them to death, men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. It's a, it's a fulfillment of a promise that God made. You see, when the nation of Israel exited from Egypt, and they traveled around as a nomadic people in the desert for 40 years. I mean, traveling around with a few million people is no small feat. Can we agree that that's probably true? And, and as it were, the stronger people would sort of migrate towards the front because they could move quicker, and the, the weaker people would be back towards the end of the line, which with a few million people is quite the line. And the Amalekites would come, and they would just decimate the back of the line. They, they would wipe it out. And God said in Exodus chapter 17 and Deuteronomy 25, if you want to write those down, you can go back this week and look at it. He said, the Amalekites will pay for what they have done. And I think what we get is this picture, as uncomfortable as it is, and I'll be the, the first to admit it, I wanted to find you a loophole this week and go, no, this is really what this means. This is a God who punishes sin. This is a God who hates sin. This is a God who does not let sin go unpunished. He will punish it every time completely. And we get this picture of that in the Amalekites. Malachites. It says, so Saul summoned the men 
He mustered them, them at Telaim. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul sent them to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. I mean, it's from, it stretches from Egypt all the way to Arabia, 210,000 soldiers. This is Saul's second largest army that he ever amasses in his reign as the king of Israel. I mean, this is a huge undertaking. And then he said to the Kenites, go away and leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. And see, the Kenites were a, um, a gracious people in that they would come and do services for other nations. So they would show up and they would sharpen spears and swords and they were sort of a, a utility player as it were. And Saul says, listen, I am going to wipe out this whole area and Ken, I like you, so please leave, Ken. Because if you're in the vicinity, I'm gonna take you down too. And Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Sur, to the east of Egypt. And he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag, Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. They were unwilling to destroy completely. <laughs> but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Here's what they said. They said, hey, God, some of this makes great sense to us. I mean, they deserve it. These are people who deserve what's coming to them. And so that part of it, the part of it, God, that we agree with, we'll do. But God, the part of what you've asked us to do that we disagree with, we, we are unwilling to do. Man, I, I wish the Bible were a little more applicable, don't you? I mean, how much of this is our, our lives? God, we agree with you on this, on this point, and so we're going to follow. And God, here, in this thing, we, we don't agree, and so we're going to do our own thing. I mean, this is happening all over the church. The reason that God said to Saul, don't take anything, was because this was not a war of conquest. This was not a war of imperialism. This was a war of justice. He was exacting his vow, his justice on this nation. He was punishing their sin. He was punishing them for the way that they interacted with the Israelites. It wasn't about Saul patting his pockets and increasing his storehouses. This was about God making right what had gone wrong. And that's why he's so passionate. It says, and then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I'm grieved that I have made Saul king because he was turned away. He's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Don't you love that picture of a man who just wants to battle for his people? Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel, and there he set up a monument in his own honor. He's turned and gone away to Gilgal. Now, anytime you need to build yourself a monument, you're in trouble. When Samuel reached Saul... He said to him, the Lord, or Saul said to him, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? That's really interesting, Saul. You accomplished the mission because, wait, what's that? Oh yeah, I can hear the sheep that you unrightfully took from the place that you were supposed to wipe out completely. 
And Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites, and they spared the best of the sheep, the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. Isn't it interesting? Somewhere along the way, it turns from the Lord, our God, to Samuel, it's the Lord, your God. It's this subtle shifting. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord has said to me last night. <laughs> now, if you're Saul at this point, you're going, oh no, that's not good. That is not good. Because the tone he says it in isn't like, hey, stop, let me tell you about what God is. It's, it's no, stop. Stop with the shenanigans, Saul. Come on. And Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He sent you on mission saying, go, completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Why did you not obey? I wrestled with that question this week because I think it is the question of this passage. And here's what it would be easy for me to do. And, and actually, my, my first outline, this is sort of the direction I went. It would be easy for me to stand up here and go, you should be people that obey. You should be people that obey. And, and hey, we should. We should. But what's interesting is that this passage really draws out for us in a very subtle yet driving way why Paul Saul, didn't that all morning? Why Saul doesn't obey. And that's what I think is going to really shape and form us to be more in the line of, of what Jesus is inviting us into is if we realize why. What is it going on internally inside of Saul that causes him to say no to the blessing of God and do things in his own way? Well, look at three verses with me in this passage we just read that I think give us a hint as to why Saul doesn't obey. Verse 9 said this, But Saul and the army spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and the cattle, and the fat calves, and the lambs, and everything that was good. See, here's the deal. In this day, in this time, for a king to have another king in their possession was a status symbol. I mean, it was a way of, of building yourself up. It was a way of beating your chest a little bit because there's going to come a time when they're going to have a festival and they're going to bring Agag out probably in some sort of cart and parade him through the city and Saul's going to get to say, see, I'm the king of kings. And so he says, listen, God, I know you told me to kill him, but Agag's beneficial to me. Agag makes me look better. Agag increases my status a little bit. So I'm going to hold on to Agag. Hey, hey, here's the truth of the matter. For, for most of us in this room, we probably come in holding on to some Agags. Second, it says, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gotten a caramel there. He set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. See, Saul's going, hey, let me broadcast to the nation my military victory. Let me show them what I have done and who I'm becoming. And so I'm going to build an altar or I'm going to build a monument to myself. And every time you walk into the city of Carmel, you can touch it and you can thank God for King Saul. Verse 17. Samuel says to him, although, it's this poignant statement, you were once small 
in your own eyes. Did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Did you know that it's possible to hear something and not really get it? It's possible to see something and not really observe it. It's possible for God to say something to us and for us to hear him, technically hear him say it, but for it to never really truly sink into our souls. Because here's the thing, Saul still is small in his own eyes. The only reason you need to build an altar to yourself is to try to prove to somebody else who you really are and how big you really are. The only reason you need King Agag in your possession, even though God has said, I want him dead, is to build yourself up. And you see what's under Saul's disobedience and what's often under ours too, okay, can we just, that, that's really where we're going this morning. What's under Saul's disobedience and what's also under ours and it drives us sometimes oh so subtly is the fact that we're trying to make a name for us. And you see, the desire to make a name for ourselves always, every time, 100% of the time, prevents us from living for the name of Jesus. See, we will either live in order to define a name or we will live in response to a name. But we will never do both. We won't ever do both. And you can look through it time after time after time. Saul, throughout the course of his reign, is defined by what are people going to think of me. So, so people famously sing the song about David. You may have, if you've read through 1 Samuel, it's David, or Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And Saul heard it, and the words rang in his ears, and he just thought, all right, I need another monument need to get another victory, need another king in my possession because that void is shaping him. That void is defining him. That void is driving him. Hey, I can't, I can't tell you how many, especially young men I've met with that had absent fathers. Maybe they were there physically, they were present, but they weren't engaged emotionally. And, and every single one of these guys is wondering what they can do, and they may not say it like this, what they can do to have their dad look at them square in the face and say, I'm proud of you. And it shapes them. It drives them to do crazy, insane things. You see, God is trying to teach Saul to trust because he's trustworthy. He's trying to teach Saul dependence because he's dependable. He's trying to teach Saul obedience because he wants them to be blessed. But Saul the whole time says, I will not really hear what you've said is true about me. And the thing that drives Saul's entire life and that often drives ours too is will we hear from God who he says that we are in a deep enough way to allow it to shape who we become? Because until we hear that, it will be the only thing that drives us trying to earn a name for ourselves. And when we're trying to earn a name for ourselves, we can never live for the name of Jesus. Let me dig a little bit deeper into how this plays out in the life of Saul. In verse 15, 
It says, early in the morning, he went up to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul's gone to Carmel, and there he set up a monument in his own honor. And he's turned and gone down to Gilgal. And when Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. A little overeager, aren't we, Saul? Like, settle down. The, the, he, but he knows in the back of his head, the conversation's coming. The conversation's coming. Either Samuel's going to ask or Samuel already knows. And so I'm going to do a little bit of a preemptive strike on this. This is when I, I, I walk in the door at night after, after work and Ethan runs up to me, my son Ethan, and he says, I took a nap today. <laughs> now, I will put as much money as I have on the fact that he did not take a nap today. <laughs> and, and I'm right 100% of the time. I think Saul does the same thing with Samuel. And what we see, what we see, and what's under his disobedience and the way that it starts to sort of show itself in his life is that self-deception creates an an inability to deal with and walk in reality. I think, and I wrestled with this, I think he actually believes what he said. I I think he's told himself so many times, this was what God asked. This was what God wanted me to do. I, I know I can, hear the, I can hear the cattle and I can hear the sheep and I know that King Agag is, is in my prison, but this is, this is what God has called me to do. I know it is. We admit for a moment, hey, we are kings at self-deception. Here, here's a truth. No one's lied to you more than you have. You will never meet somebody who lies to you more than you do. And you're going, well, but, but, no, no. I mean, we're good at this. We're good at this. We, we, we do it in a ton of different ways. I mean, some of the extremes are like people that, that medicate themselves just to deal with reality because we, we really can't do it. And so there's this epidemic of people addicted to pain, kill, pain, pain pills and and alcoholism and, and all sorts of things. It's just an inability to say, I, I'm able to face reality. But you, I do it more subtly. I do it more subtly. Mine mine is phrased like this. It's not that bad. Or somebody else is way worse than me. As if God was grading on a curve. (laughs) Where he goes, oh yeah, Paulson, you're like 90 percentile. You're, You're doing good. Or it was just a one time thing. It was just, or it, it won't happen again. Here's the, the hard part about self-deception is that we're great at it. So let me show you from this passage, and um, I'm going to fly through these, but from this passage, how we often, how it often plays out in our life. One, if you want to write these down, feel free. One, we are overzealous to prove that we are right. Saul's preemptive strike is, let me prove that I'm okay. Let me prove that I'm right. This is you and I having to tell everybody why we were right about such and such. Before they can question us or tell us that we're wrong, we tell them that they're right. That we're right. I, um, I'll just be really honest with you today. I, I, uh, we're in budget season right now here, which is um, fun. And uh, I had a meeting this last uh, two weeks ago. Where, with a staff member that um, I felt came in a little unprepared because 
we haven't done this before, and I didn't give any direction, so wonder why they were unprepared. So I looked at what they brought, and I started asking a ton of questions that I knew they couldn't answer. What about this? Do you plan on doing this this year? Yeah. Where's that in the budget? Do you really think this is going to cost that much? Yeah. What's, what's this money for? That's not a great idea. Here's how I would do it if I were you. I walked out of the meeting, and I walked straight into our bookkeeper's office, Nate, who um, was in the meeting also, and I told, went on to tell him how well I thought the meeting went and how right I thought I was. Why? Because I had this haunting suspicion that my immaturity and my lack of ability to lead well really meant that I didn't handle that well at all. But I wanted to defend. I wanted to prove that I was right, that I was okay. I think we do it all the time. I do it all the time. Uh, second, he says, I did obey. Here's, what, here's, the second, here's the second thing we do. We often try to pass partial obedience as obedience. We try to pass partial obedience as obedience, but here's the deal. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Listen to the way that um, the book of James says it, and it says, for whoever wants to keep the whole law, for whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking it all. Oh, man. See, we often see partial obedience, I often see partial obedience as a license to do whatever I want. So it plays out a little bit like this. God, I've, I've loved my wife well, but she didn't reciprocate, so I'm done trying. So, so I did my 95% God, and so this 5%, I'm just, I'm taking it for me. I gave financially, but my finances got worse, so I'm to stop giving to you, God. I followed you, God, and I worked hard, but I was overlooked for the promotion, so I'm out. I'm, 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 I'm just going to slack off like everyone else now. And you see, we try to pass partial obedience thinking God is cool with, if we give our good 95%, he's cool with us having our five. As if God ever wanted to be an accessory to anyone's life. I mean, he's not looking at you going, hey, you got a good thing going here. I I think I could be a nice supplement to what you have and who you are. I could help you out when you need it. He's not looking to be an accessory to anyone's life. He will be your whole life or he will not be a part of it at all. His partial obedience is always complete disobedience. Third, um, we completely and blatantly ignore evidences of disobedience. It says, what is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? It's that time like in the car where Kelly will say to me, does the car sound weird? Does the engine, is the engine making a noise? And I will turn up the radio and go, no, I don't know what you're talking about at all. <laughs> we do it in all sorts of different ways though. I mean, some of it's even cloaked in religion. Like they say, hey, we're gonna use those to, uh, we're gonna use those sheep as an offering to you, God. So some of us come in Sundays and, I mean, the sheep follow us in. The cows are, the cows are whatever they're doing, lowing. I'm a city boy. All this lowing and bleeding, I don't know. 
And man, I, I mean, some of that is the tension that even right now, sitting next to your spouse, you might feel. So we just haven't been obedient. And the evidence of it is clear. Third, fourth, Saul says, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. See, see what he does is he shifts the blame. God, this isn't my fault. This is their fault. This is their fault. And see, if we live in self-deception, oftentimes, oftentimes, we're going to find ourselves doing one of those things. Justifying our actions, trying to shift the blame, trying to rationalize our partial obedience and sell it off as full obedience. But see, here, here's what I challenge you on. As, as painful as that might be, and my hope is that, be, because God's grace is thicker than that, my hope is that that is a little bit painful and weighty this morning, is that we would be the type of people that because of God's grace don't feel the need to rationalize like Saul did and justify, but we would be the type of people that would simply come to him and repent. So I went on a, a run last Saturday, and every single step I took was painful multiple ways. Um, definitely physically, but this meeting that I had was just in my mind. And the Holy Spirit was just wrecking shop on me. And as I got done with the run, it was clear I need to, I need to make that right. So I, I gathered a meeting with the three of us on Tuesday and simply said, I was wrong. I was immature. I didn't handle that well. And I'm sorry. And it was beautiful what happened. And their forgiveness of me and my, and my saying, like, I, I wasn't the perfect leader there, and by God's grace, I'll do better next time. I may or I may not, but, but we're all under grace here, and so thank you for forgiving me. But if, that doesn't ha if it doesn't come to fruition, if it doesn't come to light, we can live our whole life in self-deception. And so Samuel's unwilling to let Saul go there. Listen to the way that this continues to play out. Stop! Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord has said to me last night. Not good. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes and um, did not, you become the head of the tribes of Israel. The Lord anointed you over Israel. He sent you on mission. See, he anointed him, redefined who he was, and then sent him to fulfill the calling that he'd given him to go and completely destroy the wicked people of the Amalekites, to make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you disobey? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey, the Lord, Saul said. I went on mission, on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. It's like they were ready to pounce on it. They were ready to bring it back. And see, here's the deal. Because of this void, because Saul feels like he needs to prove that he's worthy of the anointing that God has given him, he seeks his whole reign to justify and to exalt himself. And self-exaltation will always cause us to reinterpret the call of God. Because God's call didn't fit what Saul wanted to accomplish. God's call was wipe it all out, and Saul saw an opportunity, a window to, I can build myself up just a little bit. 
And when we feel the need to exalt self, we will always choose what benefits us most, not necessarily what God has said. So here's a question for us, friends. Here's a question for us. Do we stand under the word of God or what he says goes, even if it's not popular in our society? And, and hey, this just in, it's not popular. And, and the writing's on the wall. It's not going to get more popular. Will we say, yeah, Lord, we will follow you even when that 5% doesn't make sense and we don't get it and we don't like it and it doesn't benefit us? Like as a leader, I need to wrestle with, will we continue to preach the word of God even when people leave the church because we make a stand on what the Bible says? And we will. We will. Do we stand under the word of God or do we stand over it? And Saul, Saul said, yeah, I stand over it. And God says, listen, if you're proud, I will not exalt you. But if you were humble, I would. You'd step into everything that I had planned that you would do. Listen to the way that James says this. It says he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Listen to the way this passage continues. It says, but Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. Translation, here's the Ryan Paulson translation. God is not that interested in what you can do for him. He has it all. It's all his. This Justin, he doesn't need you. So he's not, he's not sitting there with the Israelites going, oh, you know what? I did want that, the smell of those sheep. That was going to be pleasing to me because I don't have that kind of aroma up here in heaven. So thank you for thinking of me. But here's the thing. So many of us, we come to church every Sunday and a lot of us are here a lot during the week and we are worshiping God, but, but, but we're also trying to work to earn his approval to say, yes, good job, thank you, I need you. And he's going, I'm not as interested in what you can do for me. I'm interested in you knowing me. I'm interested in you knowing that I love you. I'm interested in you knowing that I'm for you, not based on what you can do for me, but based on what I've done for you, I'm for you. And he's going, I didn't want the sacrifices, I wanted you. You can't pay me off. See, their obedience showed their love, and he wanted their love, and he wanted their heart, and they said, we'll give you some of our stuff. But we'll keep the rest of it for ourselves. And he calls it exactly what it is. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance, like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. He says, your sin, what, what that actually is, is you playing God and telling God to take a backseat. That's what it really is. You see, here's the deal. You can write this down, jot this down. Sin is not wicked and evil because of what we do. It's wicked and evil because of whose authority we reject. And that's why there's an evil, even playing field with sin. 
Because all of it's saying to God, we think we know better. We think we do it different. We think we do it differently. And God, maybe you should be open to a suggestion every once in a while. Like when it comes to sexuality, God, could you be open to some suggestions? Come on. When it comes to my finances, God, could you just be open to some suggestions? I've got great ideas here. And God goes, listen, this relationship either works or it doesn't, and it works if I'm God and you're not, and you realize that. See, he's not interested in our 90% obedience. He's interested in us walking in the goodness and the grace of everything that he intended us to walk in. Verse 24, and we're coming to a close here. It says, and Samuel, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. And it's almost as though the blinders are taken off a little bit. I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Catch this. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Saul afraid? I mean, Saul has an army that surrounds him at all times. Saul's a head taller than everybody else. Saul afraid? See, here's the deal, here's the deal, here's the deal. Saul is not afraid of what they will do to him. They're, he's afraid of what they will think of him. Saul's even still, even now, protecting. He says, listen, I was protecting my reputation. That's what you read there. I was afraid of what they think. I was afraid of the way they perceive me. I mean, I'm the, the king, but I still, I, even though I'm the anointed, I don't really believe it, and so I need other people to reaffirm it and tell it to me. See, if Saul had settled that question up front, if he would have really believed that he was the anointed king of Israel, he wouldn't have needed his little lowly men to reaffirm it to him. But see, here's what we learn, is that self-preservation robs us of the ability to really truly trust and follow God. When we need to preserve ourselves. It makes us unable to really follow God. So the Bible goes a long way to prove his love for you. It says, David writes, when I'm afraid, God, when I'm fearful, I'll trust in you. See, there's a thin line between Saul and David. See, when David's fearful, he doesn't give in. When David's fearful, he, he trusts he trusts. See, I think you can make the point that David was a way bigger screw-up than Saul. And if you just look at it objectively, there's this thin line between Saul and David. You see, Saul always has something to prove. He doesn't believe who he really is, but David believes in his calling. He believes that he's anointed. He believes that he's the king of Israel. He knows it. Saul, when he messes up, he justifies it. When David messes up, he repents and he confesses. Saul never believes who he is. David lives out of an acknowledgement that he is the king, the anointed one, the chosen one of God. Which begs the question, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? I mean, if... Living for our name causes us to not live for the name of Jesus. How do, we, how do we reverse that? Well, see, here's the beauty of the gospel, friends, is that you don't need to earn a name. You receive a name. And here's, the, here's your name, okay? Here's your name. 
You are blessed. You are chosen. You are loved. You are a son or a daughter of the king. You are holy, blameless, perfect, spotless right now. Not like when you get it together, some future version of you. Right now, you are a son or daughter of the king, holy, blameless before the throne of God. He's chosen you. He loves you. The scriptures say that he has anointed you and indwelt you with his Holy Spirit that seals you for the day of redemption. And I think the God of the universe says to you and to me this morning, you can continue to be Saul if you want to and live out of a void of trying to prove yourself and justify yourself and make yourself Or, or, you can finally receive who he has said that you are. And see, this distinction between the life of Saul and the life of David begs us to ask the question, do we really know who we are? Because knowing who God has made you to be will allow you to walk into what God has called you to do. I I like this better, but I was too late for the bulletin. Knowing your identity frees you to live your destiny. Knowing your identity frees you to live your destiny. The story ends with David saying, hey, will you reinstate, or Saul saying, will you reinstate me so we can go worship? Which isn't his way of saying, I want to go to church and sing kumbaya. It's his way of saying, can we get on with the victory procession so that I can bring King Agag in front of everybody and they can see how great I am. He's still manipulating. And this passage ends with Samuel going and taking a knife and literally carving apart King Agag. I wonder how many of us bring our King Agags in here. Ways that we want to justify ourselves, make ourselves okay, acceptable, even beneficial to God. And he says, no, no, I'm not, I'm not playing that game. You want to be acceptable. You want to be beneficial. Here's my son. I'm giving him to you. You don't earn it. You can't purchase it. It's just simply by his grace and mercy towards you that he showers down all over And you see, you can try your whole life to make a name or you could maybe for the first time this morning finally submit under him and receive the name that you're chosen and blessed and loved in his sight. That's why it's fitting that we come to the table. It's our reminder from God. I have made you. I have shaped you. I have purchased you with my blood and you are mine. As you come and as you take the, take the bread, you can, hold, you can uh, eat that uh, as you feel led as a sign of your individual relationship with the Lord, but then hold the cup and we'll take that and celebrate that together as a body. But as you come to the table, would you come receiving grace and mercy abundant and may it rename you and remake you and fill you in a way that redefines the way that you live. Jesus, we we love you and we are so grateful, Lord, for your calling on us, for your invitation to us. 
given through the body and the blood of Jesus. Oh, Lord, would you make us grateful, thankful people. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.